everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Monday, January 30th edition. It's brought to you here on the morning of Tuesday, January 31st. Can you believe it? We're already through the month of January, the first full month of the year. It's gone so fast. It's so surprising. And before we get into the headlines, let's take a check of the forecast for Fort Dodge in the northwest Iowa area here. Well, first and foremost, we have a wind chill advisory in effect through today at 10 a.m. So if you're listening to us on the air here at 7 o'clock, just be careful if you're going out and about. Do bundle up. For today, you can expect sunny conditions. Those wind chill values as low as negative 20 with an actual high near 17 above. Winds from the southwest up to 13 miles per hour. But again, for your Tuesday, a high near 17. Tuesday night tonight, mostly clear with a steady temperature around 7. Wind chill values as low as negative 10. Those winds from the south and southwest up to 11 miles per hour. For tomorrow, your Wednesday, expect sunny skies with a high near 24. Winds from the southwest up to 10 miles per hour. Mostly clear on Wednesday night, a low around 3. And Thursday, sunny conditions with a high near 20. For your Tuesday again, expect a high of 17 degrees and sunny conditions. For the rest of the week, you can expect uh, not so bad conditions out there. Sunny skies will be warming back up to uh, 24 degrees on Wednesday. And it'll be highs in the mid-teens and low 20s uh, throughout the week. And hopefully we'll get some uh, warmer weather here soon. As we know, uh, we're getting closer. We've hit the pinnacle. We should be going the other way now, hopefully, as we uh, get into February and then March and then April. Things really start to turn around. Well, let's hope so anyway. As we're getting into this edition of the Ford Dodge Messenger, I hope you enjoyed your extended forecast there. Looking at the headline news on page one. Building Families has a parent's back. Program serves Hamilton, Humboldt, and Wright counties. That's a story by Jane Curtis. Facing your fears, Ford Dodge middle school students learn how to adopt Mamba mentality. And uh, work hard, play hard. Wirch family is a team. Uh, these stories and more, we're going to start it off here with this uh, facing your fears thing. And it shows a photo here in the headline uh, on the front page. It's an AP photo. A fan pays his respects to Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, in front of a mural in Los Angeles on January 26, 2021. Kobe and Gianna Bryant were killed in a helicopter crash in 2020. And it's that uh, mural on the wall there. Um, anyway, there's a dude who's kneeling in front of it. looks like he's praying to this mural. Ah, this story by Chris Johnson. Connor McLeod grew up as a fan in the Kobe Bryant era. Bryant's untimely passing three years ago shook the sports world and changed the perspective of many people. His message also resonated with millions. One of the things I loved about Kobe was how skilled and talented he was, said McLeod, a middle school teacher and coach in the Fort Dodge Community School District. His approach stuck with me, and I love the way he went about his business and what he does under pressure. Being a coach, I can relate to this and add, or rather, and uh, pick pieces of his Mamba mentality to use with my kids and athletes. Mamba mentality was named after Bryant's approach to competing and is nicknamed Mamba. Last Thursday, on the three-year anniversary of Bryant's death, McLeod decided to use Bryant as a teaching tool for his sixth-grade ELA, that's English and Language Arts class, at Fort Dodge Middle School. His general work ethic, always wanting to get better and facing your fears, was something I wanted to share with my class, McLeod said. 
I did a slideshow and we talked about Kobe's approach. I just wanted to dive deeper into it. And he was sharing, sharing this lesson. McLeod noticed how, he, how engaged his students were. The kids were great, McLeod said. I taught, in, I taught it three times that day and I thought they did an outstanding job. They were engaged in the lesson and me explaining what it was. They were locked in. Well, the students were understanding the bigger picture of Bryant's approach and message. They were asking questions and they were curious, McLeod said. We did two activities, including one on how to handle pressure. They were focused. You can tell as a teacher they were working and had a lot of fun. McLeod then had students write their fears on a piece of paper and throw it in a tr trash can as they walked out the door yelling, Kobe. I can't take full credit for that activity, McLeod said. I saw Michael Bonner, a world-famous teacher, do it as part of the Mamba Mentality series on being fearless. If you have fear, it teaches you how to approach things head-on. You may be afraid of it at first, but you have to have no excuses when it comes to working hard to persevere. They attack their fear while writing it down on a piece of paper, crumpling it up and yelling Kobe on their way out. Well, sixth grader Lane Hansen enjoyed the activity. It was fun and inspiring, Hansen said. It was teaching us how to be a good person and go outside of your comfort zone. It taught us how to be successful. All right, that story of utmost importance, it sounds like, maybe. Building Families Has a Parent's Back. Program serves Hamilton, Humboldt, and Wright Counties. It's by Jane Curtis. McKinley Bailey wants you to know three things about building families. One, it's part of Early Childhood Iowa Network, funded in part by appropriations from the Iowa legislature. Two, that funding has seeded Hamilton County's success in turning a child care system that was on the brink of collapse into one that's successful now. That is from the community participation, said Bailey, who is Building Families Director. Three, I'd like people to know we have all these programs out there and oftentimes we have vacancies. We know that families are struggling and we'd like to be a service for them, Bailey said. He simplified that thought. Basically, if you're a parent and you have a child under five and you're struggling, give me a call and we'll help, Bailey added. What is Building Families? Well, Building Families is a three-county 501c3 that is a hybrid of the Early Childhood Area Board. According to the Iowa Code, that's actually a local government, Bailey said, providing clarification. It serves three counties bilingually, Hamilton, Wright, and Humboldt. Right now, Building Families is perhaps best known for its involvement with the Hamilton County Child Care Coalition, whose efforts have successfully underwritten hourly bonuses for workers in the child care business in Hamilton County. And you likely have heard of Be Inspired CAPP, CAP. The hugely successful teen program run by Tiffany Larson that serves Hamilton, Wright, and Franklin Counties. But Bailey wants you to know more about HOPES, that's H-O-P-E-S, the free and confidential outreach designed to back up a family when it comes to all things parenting. We have something called the Parent Connection, he said. That is a shorter-term service. Typically, it will last about seven weeks. What we do there, Angela Wesselink does that, she serves all three counties. She does partially contract with Wright County Public Health, but she works in all three counties. She serves children 0 to 18. Basically, the idea is to give parents the skills they need to deal with challenging behaviors. Kids don't come with an instruction book, right? 
he continued. And so parents who are struggling, my kid is doing this and I don't know what to do about that now, or I feel like I'm missing some part of knowing how to be a parent, maybe because my parents weren't the best parents or something like that. Basically, Angela is the closest thing to an instruction book. She puts on classes and then she'll also go into the home. It's once a week for about seven weeks and people really, really admire her. Here's how it works. We prefer it doesn't always happen this way. We prefer to meet up with a mom or a family, Bailey said. Once a week, we'll come to their house and they can meet at the library. However, they like to do it. We'll help them get ready to have the baby. And then after the baby's born, we'll continue to work with them, make sure they're connected with all the resources available to them in the community and track the health and well-being of the child and just support mom, you know? This program is not only for people who are poor, he said or added. We have some very high-income moms who have a child with some disability, Down syndrome, whatever it might be. We do support anybody who needs it, but most who end up serving are people who are lower on the income scale. Bailey is very specific about how his agency defines need. People think about poverty and money, but when you really get into it, it's a poverty of relationships, he said. When my car breaks down, I call my dad. A lot of people don't have that. We can fill that void. Funding. Well, Building Families receives funding from the legislature in two allocations. One, which is the smaller one, called Early Childhood. That money we are required to spend on child care, supporting the child care system, Bailey said. The much larger pot of money is called the School Ready. And that we use to fund all the other things that we do. Also, with the creation of the Hamilton County Child Care Coalition, Building Families has had a major influx of funding from counties who are using their ARPA, or American Rescue Plan Act, dollars to support this, and also through Hamilton County from area businesses and individuals. The reality is, though, the ARPA funds will fall off. The county has already said they will probably not be able to continue the exact same level of commitment, but it is their intention at this point in time Obviously, budgets fluctuate, economy changes, that their intention is to continue supporting it, said Bailey. And we can just say, wow, this worked, right? Well, a lot of times in government, you think you've got a solution for a problem, and you try it, and then it doesn't work, right? But this is one where we can say we did A, then B happened, and B is what we wanted to happen. The Hamilton County Child Care Coalition started with three-year support commitments. We asked everybody for a three-year pledge, and we'll go back and do that again, he said. I think with the proven results, we should be able to continue for at least six years. It would be hard for anybody who has put money into it to say, well, that was a waste. So we think we can go at least six years with this. The Community Adolescent and Pregnancy Prevention Program, which is what Larson does, is funded by a grant from the Iowa Department of Human Services and starting this year also private fundraising, he continued. The grant is not enough to cover the actual cost of the programming, so we're having to do some other fundraising to pay for that. Most of the School Ready Iowa money received by building families goes to three HOPES programs. There's one in each county. They are long-term home visitation programs. These long-term home visitations will stay with the family prenatally until the child turns three, Bailey said. You're talking years. Preschool support. We do preschool scholarships, Bailey said. So four-year-old statewide voluntary preschool, 
That's public, obviously. It's run through the school system. Three-year-old preschool, though, it's not. That's all entirely private. So we, at most of the preschools in our three counties, I think with the exception of St. Thomas, they do not participate in our program, but the rest work with us and typically are able to provide scholarships up to at least 200% of the federal poverty level. We don't want income to be a reason. Kids can't get into three-year-old preschool, he added. Business investment program. Another thing that we do aside from the child care worker bonuses for child care is called the business investment program. And that's through a collaboration with Child Care Resource Referral of Northwest Iowa, Bailey said. Our in-home child care providers are also eligible for it. It's not just for folks in a center, he added. In-home providers, if they want to start an in-home child care business, not only will child care resource referral work with them for free to get them started, but through the business investment program, we can cover just about all of the costs associated with starting an in-home child care business. We can go up to $750 and then anything over that, like if you're a busy road, the inspector might say you need to put in a fence or maybe you need an egress window, we can offer low interest microloans to help cover anything above that cost. Once the in-home child care business is up and running, the owner can return to building families for further support. If they can, if they take quality improvement measures, they get up to $500 a year to buy new things for their child care business, Bailey said. So we have not forgotten about those in-home child care providers. It's an essential element of child care in the three counties. As far as contracts, we have contracts with all three public health departments who operate these programs, Bailey said. We're paying for it, and the public health departments are also. We pay for two-thirds to 75% of the program, and the public health departments cover the remaining quarter to a third of the cost in any given year. I'm basically a contract manager for these programs that I'm talking about. There are 38 Area Childhood Iowa Area Boards. Each one of them is different. In the case of building families, there is a full-time director, Bailey, whose job it is to champion the cause, and he does. It's important that the people who take care of our children are paid at least as much as the people who take care of our cheeseburgers, said Bailey. That was not the case in, the Hamilton, in Hamilton County a year and a half ago. Then the whole community stepped in. That is progress. All right, that was probably the longest story in all of newspaper history. Moving on now to Work Hard, Play Hard, Wurch Family, that name Wurch, W-U-R-C-H. Family is a team. Wurch Family is a team. Three generations have called this Century Farm home. That's written by Lori Berglund. For Iowa farm kids, it's a rite of passage as familiar as walking beans or baling hay. Spring or fall, or even in between, there are a few farm kids around who have not spent hours in the field just picking up rock. Come to think of it, picking up rock has more staying power than either walking beans, decades since that happened, or baling hay, which also isn't what it used to be back in the day. It took years of digging and finally one good afternoon with a backhoe to pry a monumental scrap of glacier from the John and Vivian Worch Farm east of Webster City. We didn't know it was that big, said Vivian Wirch, looking back at the long process of unearthing the stunning piece of granite that now serves as a welcoming piece of art for the couple's century farm.
Fitting, perhaps, that slab of rock working its way to the surface for thousands of years would serve to honor a family farm a century in the making. John Wirch, who was born and raised on the farm, is the third generation to call it home. The couple raised two daughters on this tidy farm and now have four grandsons who all return to lend a hand. John's sister and her husband, Dorothy, and Jim Sargent also maintained part ownership in the Century Farm. It was John and Dorothy's grandparents who came first to Iowa from Illinois in 1901. Emil and Mary, or Marie, Wirch had been married about six years and were looking for a new opportunity. He had been working in a coal mine in Illinois, and I guess he decided he would rather farm than work at a coal mine, John Wirch said with a grin. Originally, the couple settled on a rented farm near Highview. It wasn't until 1921 that the couple was able to purchase 160 acres in Independence Township. They paid $325 per acre. The Great Depression was less than a decade away, but sometimes it's best not to know what's coming. John's parents, William and Evelyn Wirch, would follow in Emil and Marie's footsteps on this same farm. John Wirch can still remember his elder generation farming with horses, picking corn by hand, and working hard every day. Farming methods may have changed, but the lesson of hard work is something that John and Vivian made sure to pass on to their daughters, Carrie and Amy. They helped a lot on the farm, John Wirch said. They learned how to work, and they still know how to work. While earlier generations kept the farm through the, hard, the uh, hardships of the Great Depression and the shortages of World War II, it would fall to John and Vivian Wirch to preserve during the farm crisis of the 1980s. I don't even want to tell you the sad story, said John Wirch, known in the neighborhood for his cheerful nature. But there is one story from those times the couple shares. We had just bought another farm near Blairsburg, and we didn't know if we'd make it, Vivian Wirch said. Through this time, they shared the friendship of a good banker. Lucian S. Bud Wood was president of the former Farmers National Bank in Webster City. John and Vivian were planning to buy a farm closer to their own when the owner of the Blairsburg farm approached them. They decided to talk it over with Wood before making a decision. I talked to Bud Wood and he said, I'll take you on a plane tour of both the places that John Wirch recalled. Wood wouldn't tell them what to do, but after seeing both farms from the sky, he said, if I were you and you can get the Blairsburg place for a certain price, that's the one I'd buy. It was good advice and an enduring example of a business relationship that went beyond business to fairness and friendship. Working with people you can respect and trust are good memories to keep from the farm crisis of the 1980s, and it's those stories that John and Vivian Wirch will pass down to generations that will no doubt face their own challenges. These days, both of their daughters are married with kids of their own, and it's with great pride that John and Vivian Wirch note that all of the grandkids enjoy being an active part of the farm. Carrie's sons, Max and Sam Peterson, and Amy's sons, Jackson and Joey Zier, return often to help out and work. They all like to come and work on the farm, that's for sure, Vivian Wirch said. As for John, he has one piece of advice for his grandsons, or any man who wants to farm for that matter. If you want to farm, get married to a good woman, he said, one that has an education. John and Vivian Wirch, who grew up on a farm near Camrar in Hamilton County, have always been a team on the farm. I've done everything. I've done the combining. I, the only thing I haven't done is the planting, Vivian Wirch said. We started with just a small combine, she said. 
In fact, we started picking corn without a cab, and then we got our first combine, and we kept working up. Vivian also maintained an off-farm job for most years of their marriage. She worked for Northwestern Bell in Webster City, and at one time worked days on the farm and then worked nights at Farm Journal talking to farmers on the phone. In between her jobs and farm work, Vivian also put the meals on the table, and that's a job that never ends. I'm still making meals, she said with a smile. I've got grandkids here all the time, and I'm still cooking. All right, what a nice story about some farmers here in the area. That takes care of everything on the front page. Uh, that was a John and Vivian Wirtz's story from their farm. Very nice farmstead pictured here on the front page. Moving on now to page two, and the stories there, more national news this time. Actually, no, before I go into that, we're going to do a state story uh, about Rita Hart. Uh, in brief here, it's on page two. Iowa Democrats pick Hart as new state leader. Dateline Des Moines. This is an AP story. Iowa Democrats chose a failed congressional candidate. Well, that's not a very nice title to start off with. Um, but uh, she's worked for it. Uh, a congressional candidate to lead their state party as they grapple with a series of election losses and an effort from the national party to take away its first-in-the-nation status in the presidential race. Rita Hart, the former state senator who lost a 2020 U.S. House race by just a handful of votes, was chosen Saturday over two other candidates. My focus is squarely on helping our party begin winning elections again, she said. Hart said her experience raising $5 million for the first congressional for the congressional race and the winning in a district that former President Donald Trump carried will serve her well as she works to help other Democrats win. But she'll also have to help the state party decide how to respond to the National Democratic Party's decision to put the South Carolina primary ahead of Iowa's caucuses, which have long been the first presidential nominating contest in the country. If the state party doesn't go along with the national party's decision, Iowa Democrats will run the risk that its delegates will not count toward the national nominating goal. But there is a state law that requires the caucuses to be held at least eight days before any other presidential nominating contest. The state party's last leader decided not to run for another term, which was Ross Wilburn. All right, moving on now to national news. Concerns over prayer breakfast lead Congress to take it over. Hmm. The photo here shows Joe Biden speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast, February 3rd, 2022, on Capitol Hill in Washington. This is uh, Dateline AP, Dateline Washington. Um, the National Prayer Breakfast, one of the most visible and long-standing events that brings religion and politics together in Washington, is splitting from the private religious group that had overseen it for decades due to concerns the gathering had become too divisive. The organizer and host for this year's breakfast, scheduled for Thursday, will be the National Prayer Breakfast Foundation, headed by former Senator Mark Pryor, Democrat of Arkansas. Senator Chris Coons, a regular participant and chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee, said the move was prompted in part by concerns in recent years that members of Congress did not know important details about the larger multi-day gatherings. Coons, a Democrat of Delaware, said that in the past, he and Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, the committee's vice chairman, had questions about who was invited and how money was being raised. The annual event went on several days, had thousands of people attending, 
and a very large and somewhat complex organization, Kuhn said in an interview. Some questions have been raised about our ability as members of Congress to say that we knew exactly how it was being organized, who was being invited, how it was being funded. Many of us who had been in leadership roles really couldn't answer those questions. That led to lawmakers deciding to take over organizing for the prayer breakfast itself. Pryor, president of the new foundation, said the COVID-19 shutdown gave members a chance to reset the breakfast and return it to its origins, a change he said had been discussed for years. The whole reason the House and Senate wanted to do this was to return it to its roots. When House members and Senate members can come together and pray for the president, pray for his family and administration, pray for our government and world, Pryor said. Pryor said members of Congress, the president, vice president, and other administration officials and their guests are invited to Thursday's prayer breakfast, which will be held at the visitor center at the Capitol. He anticipated between 200 and 300 people would attend. Pryor said he hoped the smaller event will regain the intimacy that is similar to the weekly non-denominational prayer gatherings on Capitol Hill. Groups of senators and representatives have long held unofficial meetings for fellowship and to temporarily set aside political differences. The prayer breakfast addressed by the president has been the highlight of the multi-day event for 70 years. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the first president to attend in February 1953, and every president since has spoken at the gathering. The larger event, put on by a private religious group called the International Foundation, has always been centered around the person and principles of Jesus, with a focus on praying for leaders of our nation and from around the world, the group's spokesman, A. Larry Ross, said in an email. More than 1,400 people are registered for the two-day event, with one-third of those from outside the United States. Joe Biden, who has spoken at the breakfast for the past two years, is set to do so again. Another story from Washington. It's another AP story. Biden and McCarthy to discuss debt limit. Shows a photo here of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Sunday he is looking forward to discussing with Joe Biden a reasonable and responsible way that we can lift the debt ceiling when the two meet Wednesday for their first sit-down at the White House since McCarthy was elected to the post. McCarthy, a Republican of California, said he wants to address spending cuts along with raising the debt limit, even though the White House has ruled out linking those two issues together as the government tries to avoid a potentially devastating financial default. The Speaker pledged that cuts to Social Security and Medicare would be cut off the table. I know the President said he didn't want to have any discussion on cuts, but I think it's very important that our whole government is designed to find compromise, McCarthy told CBS's Face the Nation. I want to sit down together, work out an agreement, and we can move forward and put us on a path to balance. And at the same time, not pull any of our debt, put any of our debt in jeopardy at the same time. Asked whether he would make a guarantee, McCarthy said there will not be a default, though he suggested that a declaration depended on the willingness of Biden and the Democrats to negotiate. The White House on Sunday confirmed Wednesday's meeting on a range of issues. It said Biden looked forward to strengthening his working relationship with McCarthy and to asking about the Speaker's plan on spending, noting that the first House bill passed by Republicans this year to slash IRS funding would ultimately increase the deficit. 
The president will ask Speaker McCarthy if he intends to meet his constitutional obligation to prevent a national default, as every other House and Senate leader in U.S. history has done, the White House said. He will underscore that the economic security of all Americans cannot be held hostage to force unpopular cuts on working families. McCarthy was elected Speaker on a historic post-midnight 15th ballot early on January 7th, overcoming holdouts from his own ranks and tensions that have tested the new GOP majority ability to govern. All right, we're close enough to the halfway point here. Time to tell you you are listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All the programs heard here on IRIS are intended for the use of our audience. We thank you so much for listening. This is Andrew Haupt filling in for this episode. It's great to be with you here this morning on the network. So we'll be taking a check now of the obituaries here in the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Monday edition. And we have a few, so I'll bring those to you right now. Starting off with Betty I. Schneider. Betty I. Schneider, age 92, passed peacefully from this world into the waiting arms of her Savior on January 27th while at the Paula Faber Hospice House. She waited to make her final journey until all of her children could be with her one last time. Betty Schneider, born Stanberg, was born at home on a farm near Dayton on February 10, 1930. She attended Otho School. She met and married Eugene Urban in 1948. They had six children before they divorced. She later met James Schneider at a Bohemian dance hall. They married and lived on a farm near Sherdan for 28 years. She loved the farm life. She worked at Friendship Haven as a med aide for 10 years. She was a longtime member of the American Legion Auxiliary in Calendar, a Red Hat Ladies member, and was the president of the Good Sam RV Club. She was a member of the Fort Dodge Trinity United Methodist Church. She was a winter Texan in the Rio Grande Valley for 43 years. She and Jim made friends with other winter Texans from all over the U.S., she ran the dances at the RV Park Rec Hall for many years. Betty was an avid gardener, producing plenty to provide for her family. She loved playing cards, especially skip bow with family and grandkids. She embroidered many dish towels, always giving them away to family and friends. She also loved playing bingo with her daughters and usually won at least one game. She enjoyed traveling with her kids. Surviving Betty are her children, Diane, Amandus, of Omaha, Mike Urban of Colorado Springs, Nancy Weldon, married to Cliff of Fort Dodge, Claudine Glenn of Boone, Roxanne Hirsch, married to Randy of Peyton, and Tom Urban, married to Lisa of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She left 15 grandchildren, 27 great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. Preceding betting and passing are her parents, Bessie and Charles Stanberg, first husband Eugene Urban, husband James Schneider, brothers Basil and Jack Stanberg, and sister Isla May Stanberg of Newell, granddaughters Jamie Urban and Brandy Hirsch, and son-in-law Ron Glenn. Betty's love for her family was endless, attending all their sporting events, church events, and birthdays. Services will be 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, February 1st at Trinity United Methodist Church with the Reverend Jenna Finch Manchester officiating. Interment will follow at Elkhorn Township Cemetery. The visitation is from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday at the Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Next up, we have Irma Williamson, age 101, who passed away January 23, 2023. 
at Friendship Haven in Fort Dodge. Her celebration of life will be at 2 p.m. on Friday, February 3rd, 2023, with visitation one hour before in the Celebration Center at Friendship Haven. She is survived by her son and daughter-in-law, Kurt and Jane Williamson of St. Paul, Minnesota, and daughter, Kim Smith of Fort Dodge. Please visit www.gundersonfuneralhome.com for a full obituary or to leave an online condolence. Next up, we have John Wicket of Humboldt. John Wicket, age 75 of Humboldt, a longtime educator and coach for the Humboldt Wildcats, passed away with his family by his side on Friday morning, January 27, 2023. He is survived by his wife, Nancy of Humboldt, son Greg married to Jenny Wicket of Humboldt, his daughter Renee married to Chad Langanis of West Des Moines, and his grandchildren Mason, Ryder, Colby, Cade, Rylan, and Reagan. He was preceded in death by his parents, brother Bill, and daughter-in-law Julie. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, February 3rd, and visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 2nd, both at Faith United Methodist Church in Humboldt. The Mason Linhart Funeral and Cremation Service of Humboldt is in charge of the arrangements. A scholarship will be established in his name for future graduates at Humboldt, of Humboldt High School. Visit www.masonlinhart.com. Next up, we have Judith Stell. Judith Stell, age 76, of Fort Dodge, passed away Saturday, January 28, 2023, at the Marion Home. Services are pending. The Lawfers Weiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Next up, we have Elaine Bleem of Manson. Elaine Bleem, age 94, passed away at Friendship Haven on Sunday, January 29, 2023. Funeral services are pending at the Larson Weishar Funeral Home in Manson. Finally, we have Bonnie Jean Greenfield of Camrar. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday at the Community Church of Camrar. Funeral service will be at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday at the Community Church of Camrar. You can visit www.bowmanfh.com, B-O-M-A-N-F-H.com. And then we have a couple of announcements here from the Loffersweiler and Seavers Funeral Home. We have these services for Mervyn Cook today, age 76, uh, passed away at age 76. Funeral at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday. And we saw visitation was last night, Monday night, at the funeral home, 4 to 7 p.m. We have Judith Stell, S-T-E-L-L, age 76. Services are pending. Richard J. Sisko, age 54. No services at this time. And then we also have Keith L. Friesith, last name spelled F-R-I-E-S-T-H, age 81. Services are pending. Well, let's see what we have in sports for today. If there's not a lot, I'm going to read the police log. How Wouldn't we all like that? Yeah, why don't we do sports and then we'll wrap it up with some police log and some other fun stuff. Dodgers win an inaugural AIC Matt title. Number 4-4 Dodge wrestling team crowns seven champs and three runners-up. It's written by Chris Johnson of Des Moines. Uh, Dateline Des Moines, Saturday was a starting point and not an ending for the Fort Dodge wrestling team, both in 2023 and beyond in the Iowa Alliance Conference. Bobby Thompson had his Dodger wrestling team in a postseason mindset as they dominated the first ever IAC tournament at Des Moines North High School. I'm hoping we gain some momentum, Thompson said. All of our kids wrestled well and we're anticipating that will catapult us into regional duels and to Coralville for state duels this week. We needed this tournament, he said. The Dodgers scored 254 points and claimed the league title with seven champions and three runners-up. 
Marshalltown, 199 was a distant second, followed by Ames at 139.5. I was happy to get competition giving the weather, the snowstorm in the area, Thompson said. I'm very appreciative of our administration for allowing us to get a hotel and go down the night before. With the postseason coming, we needed to wrestle. Well, freshman Sam Davidson at 106 pounds, top-ranked Drew Ayala, 113, number 6, Max Bishop, 120, third-rated Coy Davidson, 138, and second-ranked Demarion Ross, 160. Number 12, Cal Hartman, 170, and second-rated Drayshawn Ross, 195, captured gold. Kane Butrick, 126, Jesse Egley, 152, and Keaton Nichols, 285, were all second for the Dodgers. Ayala, 28-1, now sits at 101 career victories after two falls in the first period. The Dodger Jr. pinned a Tomas Ashton Grace, 33-4, in a minute 43 for the title. Ayala is the 32nd Fort Dodge Senior High School wrestler ever to reach the century mark, joining Bishop, who hit the milestone earlier this week. Most people didn't know, but Drew made easy work of a state place winner. Thompson said, For him to get 100 wins as a junior is pretty impressive. Drew just keeps building and making gains at the right time. Dre Sean Ross at 33-2 beat Ames fourth-rated Denari Mickel, whose record is 24-7, for the third time this season in a 5-0 decision. Dre Sean has put himself in position as one of the top 195 pounders in the state, Thompson said. He has really separated himself from the pack. Freshman Sam Davidson, 16-13, and 13, captured his first ever high school tournament championship with three pins. Sam came out as the fifth seed and won it all, Thompson said. Sammy has made huge strides from the first part of the season until now. His mentality and attitude have prog progressed. He's ready for the postseason. Hartman, at 29-10, turned a match against 11th-ranked Jackson Winky at 35-10 of Ames, who had defeated him earlier in the year to reach the championship round. In the finals, Hartman knocked off Marshalltown's Nick Rebick, 17-4, with a 13-1 major decision. Cal is peaking at the right time, Thompson said. He majored a guy that had beaten him before. It wasn't a close match. Bishop, with a record that's 22-10, a senior who recently reached the 100-win plateau for his career, tallied a fall in the semifinals and a major decision in the finals against Marshalltown's Nichols Wise, Nicholas Wise, 17-8 in his record, by a 13-3 count. Junior Demarion Ross, at 34-3, spent little time on the mat Saturday, recording a fall in 27 seconds and 39 seconds. Demarion has been hot all year long, Thompson said. He has pushed himself to get where he is right now, and he keeps plugging away. And it was good to see Max finish on the top as a senior. Now he can turn his attention to the postseason. Sophomore Coy Davidson, with a 23-4 record, had two falls under 30 seconds and secured a 9-3 decision over Marshalltown's Xavier Anderson in the finals. Max and Coy needed this tournament, Thompson said. Coming back from injuries, they need to get their bodies right so they can have their best performance at the end of the year. Butrick at 25 and 11, ranked seventh, lost to Ames. Number three, Jabari Hinson at 39 and three, by fall in the finals. 
Egley, at 20 and 18, had two decision wins and dropped a 5 to nothing decision to number 11 Braylon Griffiths, 40 and 5 of Ottumwa in the finals. Nichols at 23 and 11 fell to fourth rated Kyler Hall at 33 and 3 of Ames by pin in the finals. The three runner-ups all had good matches in the finals, Thompson said. All three could have gone the other way. Jesse is getting better. Kane is tough to beat when it gets when he gets going. Keaton was maybe a little undersized. Senior Colin Munter was right there and should have been in the finals. Freshman Riley Brown is right there and continues to get better. Brown at 132 pounds and Munter, 220 pounds, were both third. Bo Cowell, 145 pounds, was sixth. The Dodgers head to Johnston on Tuesday for a Class 3A regional duel. The meet begins at 6 p.m. with the Dragons facing Lamars. Ford Dodge meets the winner for a state spot. In other news, DeYoung qualifies for world championships. The extra mile is the headline. Pocahontas resident adding a new chapter to triathlon story. And it shows photos here of Shaylin DeYoung of Pocahontas, who competes in both the swimming and cycling portion of a triathlon. DeYoung, a former Iowa State swimmer, will represent the United States at the World Triathlon Sprint and Relay Championships this summer in Hamburg, Germany. Area coach will represent USA and Germany this summer, is a subheadline of the story by Eric Pratt. Dateline Pocahontas. Almost 14 years ago, Shaylin DeYoung rediscovered her passion for competing athletically at an elite level. The Pocahontas residents' energy has been contagious ever since, reaching area students, adults, young and old, and even her own children. DeYoung will enjoy her own moment in the spotlight this summer, though as the former Iowa State University swimmer was recently informed, she has qualified for the World Triathlon Sprint and Relay Championships. DeYoung will represent the United States this July 13th through the 16th in Hamburg, Germany. I am super excited because representing your country at an athletic event is such an honor, said DeYoung, a certified USA Triathlon Level 2 coach, USA Swimming Coach, and USA Track and Field Level 1 coach. The 41-year-old DeYoung, whose maiden name is Shaylin Green, is a native of South Africa. As a 10th grader, she decided to swim collegiately and study in the United States. I contacted coaches from around the country and was offered a scholarship to swim for Iowa State, DeYoung said. I turned 18 years old, packed my bags, and flew to Iowa. DeYoung graduated from ISU in 2003, but admitted she was burned out and tired of competing at that point after nearly two decades of swimming for medals and trophies. DeYoung married her husband, Heath, a graduate of Lawrence Marathon and Iowa State, and the couple later moved to his family's farm just outside Pocahontas. Around that same time, the competitive bug bit her again. I did my first triathlon in 2009, just three months after my second child was born, DeYoung said. After a few years away from the pool, I got bored with daily exercise and realized I missed competition. I wanted to go back to it. Unfortunately, we had no master's swim programs around us, so I decided to give triathlons a try. I was already a good swimmer and runner and decided this would be my way back into competition as an adult. As DeYoung began to invest more in her time as a triathlete, her passion became a family affair. When I did my first triathlon, my oldest, Josiah, who is now 16, was two years old, DeYoung said. Over the next few years, she came to watch me race at my triathlons every summer. When he was seven in 2014, he asked me if, I, if he could start racing in triathlons as well. We signed him up for three that summer, and he won a race in Omaha. After that win, he was hooked. 
The DeYoungs joined a team based out of Des Moines in 2018 due to general lack of triathlon interest in the area. That all changed during COVID in 2020, though, as her newfound love for the sport began to reach others in and around the Pocahontas community. When COVID shut everything down, we went back to doing our own triathlon practices at home initially, DeYoung said. A lot of my friends' kids started joining us, though, because it was a sport we could safely do outside while maintaining social distance. That summer, the Twin Lakes Tri Club was born. Today, over 60 registered youth athletes are involved in the program from the ages of 5 through high school. Twin Lakes Tri Club is like my sixth baby, DeYoung said. I love our team and everything we do in the summer. We train hard and we race hard, but we have a lot of fun doing it. We learn that we are tougher than we give ourselves credit for. Well, the Twin Lakes Youth Triathlon, meanwhile, is a rapidly growing annual event. The 2023 competition hosted by Twin Lakes Bible Camp will be the organization's sixth. We usually get around 100 youth athletes racing in our events each summer, DeYoung said. We have to travel to all of our other races, which are usually seven or eight each year. That's why we initially started our own Twin Lakes Youth Triathlon. DeYoung's drive to introduce triathlons, a sport which features endurance tests in distance swimming, cycling, and running, to as many people as possible, is rooted in her competitive background and desire to reinforce a healthy lifestyle. Being a triathlete is something you can do from the moment you can swim and ride a bike without training wheels as a child all the way into your 90s, DeYoung said. It's a lifelong sport that is surrounded by an amazing community. The Twin Lakes... Tri Club offers an elite program for older kids, and DeYoung also serves as a coach for parents interested in trying a half Ironman. Last summer, the youth team produced two national champions and a national runner-up. The group also participated and successfully performed in the Rip Roar Youth Triathlon Series, which included five youth triathlons in Iowa and Nebraska. DeYoung's expertise in the pool combined with the age of her children, also got her involved in the Fort Dodge Area Swim Team, known by its abbreviation and acronym, FAST, F-A-S-T. I'm an assistant coach and have helped in the pool deck, on the pool deck in Fort Dodge since 2018, DeYoung said. I have coached all levels of youth swimmers and am currently working with swimmers aged 10 to 13 from the Fort Dodge region. Three of my own children swim for FAST, and I bring five other athletes from Pocahontas to practice with me a few times a week. DeYoung is well aware of the impact competitive swimming can have on young athletes, having experienced this lifestyle herself. I love to coach swimming because I was a competitive swimmer until college. I know where swimming can take you, that you can learn from it, and the joy of the lifelong friendships that you make along the way. It's been a pleasure coaching with new fast head coach Joe Plain. He's doing wonderful things for the sport in our area, and I'm learning a lot from him. I'm excited to see where this team will take our kids and the opportunities it will provide. This summer, the young will shift her attention from coaching and helping others to representing the United States as an individual performer. After qualifying for the United States Triathlon, or USAT, age group nationals by placing in the top level at a USAT-sanctioned event, DeYoung had to finish in the top eight of her age group to advance to Worlds. DeYoung raced in Milwaukee this past August to secure her spot. I'm nervous but excited and proud to be a member of Team USA in the sport I've devoted the last 14 years of my life to. DeYoungs have five children. 
Josiah, Caitlin, age 13, Addie, age 11, Keegan, age 9, and Taylin, age 8. All right, everyone. I think that takes care of most of our local sports news. Except for this, busy week ahead for the Dodgers. This is Dodger Corner. The four Dodge girls and boys basketball squads are scheduled for a three-game week beginning with a home twin bill on Monday against Urbandale. The Dodgers then head to Des Moines North on Tuesday before closing the busy stretch in the FDSH gym on Friday versus Marshalltown. Head coach Scott Messerly's four Dodge girls with a 10-6 overall record face the Jayhawks with a 4-14 record. 13th ranked Class 5A Polar Bears with a 13-3 record and Bobcats with a 3-14 record. The Dodgers are led by senior post players Peyton Hively, 13.5 points and 9.6 rebounds, and Laney Mail at 13.4 points and 9.7 rebounds. Freshman LJ Mail at 9.7 points and 5.3 rounds rebounds is next in line. Sophomores Davon Carl Lyle at 7.3 points and Maddie Stutler at 6.2 are Urbandale's top players. The North girls have won five consecutive games since a loss at Fort Dodge. Sophomore Amani Jenkins at 18.8 points and 12.7 rebounds and senior Elizabeth Puitt at 12.8 points and 6.8 rebounds pace the Polar Bears. The Bobcat girls are led by junior Sarah Huffman at 6.8 points and freshman Sydney Kapayu at 5.2. The Jayhawk boys are 5-12 after facing a brutal CIML schedule. Urbandale, which has dropped four in a row, is paced by junior Grant Euchre, 11.7 points, and junior Brevin Phillips at 10.0. The North boys are 2-13 overall and have lost eight straight contests. Freshman Jaden McGregory at 13.1 points and 7.1 rebounds, and senior Kenny Brooks at 11.6 points led the way. The Marshalltown boys are 10-6 behind the play of Treshawn Brooks, 10.4 points, and Drake Capayou at 10.4. All right, with all that being read and said from the sports section, our local stuff looks like it's out of the way. Moving on now to the police blotter section. This is going to be the fun stuff. Police log, Fort Dodge last Wednesday. Two domestic calls were reported. An unknown, unknown problem was reported in the 700 block of 1st Avenue South. An unknown problem was reported in the 800 block of South 17th Street. Theft was reported in the 1900 block of 5th Avenue South. A suspicious person was reported near 9th Avenue South and South 17th Street. An assault was reported in the 400 block of North 15th Street. A shoplifter was reported in the 100 block of South 29th Street. Theft was reported in the 1500 block of 4th Avenue North. Harassment was reported. Child abuse was reported. Theft was reported in the 400 block of South 8th Street. Illegal dumping was reported in the 600 block of 2nd Street Northwest. Theft was reported in the 1200 block of South 22nd Street. Theft was reported in the 1300 block of South of 2nd Avenue South, I should say. A car accident was reported in the 1100 block of Central Avenue. Trespassing was reported in the 900 block of 1st Avenue South. Theft was reported in the 1400 block of 8th Avenue North. Another theft in the 800 block of South 14th Street. A car accident was reported in the 2900 block of 1st Avenue South. Trespassing was reported 
in the 400 block of North 27th Street. Juvenile problems were reported in the 600 block of 2nd Street Northwest. Theft was reported. It doesn't give a time or a date for that. It just says theft was reported. On Thursday of last week, one domestic call was reported. A nuisance was reported in the 300 block of 1st Street Northwest. A nuisance was reported in the 2000 block of 4th Avenue North. Trespassing was reported in the 3100 block of North 15th Street. What else do we have here? I'm not going to give them all to you because we're running short of time. Criminal mischief was reported in the 300 block of South 25th Street. A car accident was reported in the 2nd Avenue uh, at 2nd Avenue North and North 16th Street. Juvenile problems were reported in the 1400 block of North 14th Street. Why don't we go down here to Magistrate Court? For Webster County, Thursday. Controlled substance violation, William Kenneth Groff, age 38, of Dayton, has a preliminary hearing on February 3rd. Don't miss that. Possession of marijuana, third offense, William Kenneth Groff, age 38. Oh, same thing, preliminary hearing, February 3rd. Another possession of meth, William Kenneth Groff, same day. Use or expired drug tax stamp, William Kenneth Groff, 38, same day. February 3rd, driving while barred, William Kenneth Groff. Jeez, they threw it all at him. Um, control of a firearm by a felon, William Kenneth Groff, age 38, of Dayton. Preliminary hearing, February 3rd. First degree harassment for Dylan Shane Dalton, age 33, of 1717 3rd Avenue South. Preliminary hearing, February 3rd. Interference with official acts causing bodily injury. That's Dylan Shane Dalton, age 33, of 1717 3rd Avenue South, and two counts. Of that, preliminary hearing is February 3rd. Assault cause, causing bodily injury. That'd be Dylan Shane Dalton, age 33, of 3rd Avenue South. Preliminary hearing, February 3rd. Accessory after the fact. Maya James Joel, age 19, of 1750 Jonathan Drive. That trial is February 22nd. Driving while barred. Mason Daniel Russell, age 28, of 22646 Circle Drive. Preliminary hearing is February 14th. Operating without interlock, Mason Daniel Russell at 22646 Circle Drive continued 180 days. Driving while under suspension. That's for Mason Daniel Russell, age 28 of 22646 Circle Drive, continued 180 days. Domestic abuse causing injury, first offense, Travis Donald Thompson, at age 45 of 1113 North 15th Street, preliminary hearing is February 14th. Possession of marijuana, second offense, by Zachary Raymond Bender, age 26 of 1301 Knollcrest Drive. Preliminary hearing is February 14th. Blake Aaron Peterson, age 29 of Duncombe, has a preliminary hearing on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Anything else interesting down here? We have an open container. Blake Aaron Peterson, age 29 of Duncombe, continued 180 days. All right, it's all going down. So anyway, that's your uh, police log and uh, magistrate court news here in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Monday, January 30th edition. is brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. This is Andrew Haupt filling in. It has been so great to be with you and be here with you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Have a nice day and straight ahead. <laughs>